You are listening to Holy Words from Holy Cross, the sermon podcast of Holy Cross Evangelical Lutheran Church in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. We hope you find these words a blessing in your daily walk with God. Please visit us on the web at www.holycrossnazareth.org or in person at 696 Johnson Road, Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Don't be all else to me, save that. You join me now for a word of prayer. Gracious Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have spent many months in this, the most extended and developed teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ in Scripture. Bless us, Lord, to see the unity of his message, but most of all, Lord, help us to have the wisdom to attend to it. May we grow in the holy wisdom which bubbles up from life eternal, which is the gift of your Son. May we adhere to his ways. May we reflect deeply and repeatedly again and again on his word and his words until they become the habit of our lives. This we ask in his most precious name, which is forever Jesus the Christ. Amen. Now that we have reached the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, a question is presented to all of us. Will we believe or merely believe in Jesus? In Luke 24-27, the road to Emmaus story, which we will hear in a couple of months, Jesus shows the disciples on the road to Emmaus that all the scriptures, not merely the Gospels, were actually a testimony to him. When the church fathers read Proverbs, as we just did, they saw in the character of wisdom the person of the pre-incarnate Son of God. To put it bluntly, they saw Jesus. They saw this in part because of these words, which we have been studying all these months in the Sermon on the Mount. These words with which Jesus concludes this sermon. Many commentators have noted how Jesus speaks in the Gospel to Jewish Christians from the top of a mountain, in this Gospel of Matthew at least creating an obvious parallel to the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus. But fewer, lacking the wisdom of the Church Fathers that perhaps comes in part from persecution, fewer have noted the parallels between the, Jesus, the way Jesus presents this, these new covenant commandments and the way the path of wisdom is laid out in Proverbs including, and maybe especially, the contrast between the path of wisdom and the path of folly. 
See, Jesus is not here giving merely commands he expects to be obeyed. He is outlining a way of life that is truly life-giving. In the Gospel of John, Jesus tells us that he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. And we know from the book of Acts that early on, early on Christianity was referred to those out, was referred to by those outside of it, I should say, as simply the way. The way Christians actually lived their lives day to day must have looked pretty different from the way the people of the surrounding culture lived their lives, both the Gentiles and the Jews. Our forefathers and foremothers must have done a great deal differently from their neighbors to have earned themselves the moniker followers of the way. So as we reflect on Jesus' words to us here in the Sermon on the Mount, as we conclude our extended reflection, we want to reflect on how they are, they're calling us to live a different kind of life, how they are calling us to believe what Jesus says here and not merely believe in Jesus as some kind of cosmic fire insurance policy or abstract concept. To rehearse for you very quickly the outline of the Sermon on the Mount, it begins with the blessings Blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. The blessings and the responsibilities of hearkening to Jesus' words. We're told not to hide our light under a bushel. Being included in the kingdom of heaven is rich with blessings and with them attendant responsibilities. Next, comes the fulfillment of the law in the internalization of the ethics towards which the law pointed in the first place. When we preached for several weeks on these, when we reflected on these together for several weeks, I called these the agape path, the path of self-giving love. And to rehearse for you what that looked like, the agape path looked like this. First of all, we remember that it is the path of, not the path to salvation. We don't add our obedience and our works to the accomplished work of Jesus Christ, but rather we walk in the way He has called us to walk because He has, of His own rich grace, as we just heard from the book of Ephesians, we have been saved by that grace. And so now we walk in His way. Things he highlighted along that way were the blessed happiness of being in Christ. Being included in the kingdom of heaven. That is the absolute foundation. From there, there is dethroning anger in our lives. That is the first step, is allowing anger to take a back seat. Refraining from it purposefully. Then, as we gain a mastery in that realm, or rather allow the Spirit to gain a mastery in our lives, 
We're called to discourage lust. We're called to faithful intimacy with our spouse if we're married and a faithful intimacy with those we call friends in a non-sexual way. We're called to utter transparency in our communication, in our relationships. We're not to be engaging in social cabals where some are in and some are out. We're called to let our yes be yes and our no be no. We're called to refrain from retaliation for vengeance belongs to the Lord and He will repay. And finally, as these pieces come into place progressively through the discipline of a life of constant repentance, constantly turning away from our sin and toward the Word of God, preeminently Jesus' words here in this Sermon on the Mount, we finally gain the ability to love our enemies. Just as Christ loved His enemies on the cross. We are called to Christ-likeness. This is the agape path. It's a path that's about the transformation of our character rather than simply the regulation of our behaviors so that new behaviors might flow without constant self-maintenance. After outlining this, as we shift into chapter 7 in particular, Jesus is going to outline for us the dangers of pursuing this path. Things that might derail us from the path that we're seeking to take in following Him. And especially from a self-conscious religiosity or a self-conscious religious enthusiasm. You see, the goal of the agape path is a lack of self-consciousness. For as our characters are transformed, our actions naturally proceed from whom we are and need less and less regulation. I love the way C.S. Lewis captured this in Mere Christianity when he said, you know, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. As our character becomes more Christ-like, we're going to reflect less and less on who we are and more and more simply enjoy being the kinds of people Christ has made us to be. But the truth is, we live in a time when it is becoming more and more challenging to live an authentically Christian life. I mean, it's always been a challenge, even when the political order was what we knew as Christendom. Remember, Jesus' warnings in chapter 7 revolve around religiosity, which is much easier to make a display of in a religiously organized culture and society. But the world around us as Christians is now self-consciously rejecting not only its Christian faith, but its Christian heritage. We must make no mistake that this will make it more and more challenging for us to live authentically Christian lives. Four out of the five 
Historic markers of religious persecution are already evident in our culture, directed specifically at Christians, because this is a post-Christian culture. And here, of course, I'm speaking to people in the West, not any brothers and sisters in Africa or Asia. In an email which the deans of the North American Lutheran Church received from our bishop a few months ago, a Roman Catholic priest identified four out of these five markers from his own religious experience. The first thing that happens if you want to religiously persecute a group is you begin stereotyping the targeted group. The kind of stories that are told about Christians and Christian history, particularly on our college campuses today, are often more stereotype and trope than they are relating of anecdotally accurate historical detail. So you stereotype the targeted group. Then you vilify the targeted group for alleged crimes or misconduct. This happened in Nazi Germany to the Jews. Then you, three, marginalize the targeted group's role in society, push them to the side. The late Robert Jensen, probably one of the greatest Lutheran theologians of the last century here in America, certainly, once said, Christians are free to do anything in America except make a difference. Then you criminalize the targeted group or its works. Here, this priest had much to, to share that wouldn't be common to our Protestant experience, particularly in the realm of Catholic charities and hospitals that have been fined or put out of business for simply following the dictates of their religiously informed consciences. There's no more Catholic adoption in Boston. When the article that he wrote was written, Here's a quote from the article that he, he wrote because of what had just happened in the United States Supreme Court. If things are not that bad, he asks, why are we being summoned to courts, threatened with fines by government and being forced as Christians to sue for our rights? What are pharmacists in Washington to do who are required by law to provide abortifacient, quote-unquote, emergency contraception? The U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear their appeal. Justice Samuel Alito, in his dissent, spoke of this refusal and the law that now stands as an, quote, ominous sign, and goes on to show how those who are concerned at the steady erosion of religious liberty have good cause to be concerned. As some of you may know, during the COVID lockdowns we've been living through, churches in some places, like Nevada, faced irrational restrictions where a building like ours that can comfortably hold 200 was only allowed to, could, hold, could hold as many people as a church that held 3,000. The same restriction was held regardless of the amount of space available. They also faced lockdowns that were unfairly targeting the churches whereas other secular endeavors around them were allowed to have more people in the same amount of space. And of course, the final stage of religious persecution is persecution outright, as the early Christians experienced in the Roman Empire. Above board, persecution at the targeted group. That's here in America. But, here, but in the West, more widely, just this past week in Canada, 
the Supreme Court notified its citizens that online hate speech legislation was coming with these words. Quote, I agree with the argument that the quest for truth is an essential component of the marketplace of ideas, which is itself central to a strong democracy. The search for truth is also an important part of self-fulfillment. However, I do not think it is inconsistent with these views to find that not all truthful statements must be free from restriction. Truthful statements can be interlaced with harmful ones or otherwise presented in a manner that would meet the definition of hate speech. Understand here that this judge is saying that it is the truth that is the problem. That some truth is too dangerous or too offensive to be allowed to be spoken. What happens when it is the truth that all religious scriptures declare? All religious scriptures declare this. That all religions are not the same. And that it is... That is a truth deemed too offensive to be spoken. What happens when it is the Christian scripture's truth or truths that are considered hate speech? Truths like Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It is true that Canada lacks the protection of a First Amendment. It's not part of their Constitution or Bill of Rights. But while that's true, Justice Alito's comments indicate that the sentiments of the Canadian Supreme Court are widely shared by America's elites. And as Peter Berger once noted, culture eats strategy for lunch. So it's, it is a difficult time or it's going to be an increasingly difficult time to live an authentically Christian life. And yet, Jesus wraps up his most significant sermon by reminding us that he has not preached it as a nice optional tag-on to simply having faith in him. The agape path is not icing on the Jesus cake. It is forever the way of salvation. Not the way to salvation, but the way of salvation. We cannot have Jesus as our Savior and not have Him as our Lord. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 reads. You heard it before, but hear it again. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are Christ's workmanship, His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. Jesus came not only to save, but to bless. And most of the blessings he will give will come from us doing those good works, living according to the agape path he has outlined for us in this sermon. Believers, 
will be transformed by in character and will be transformed in our lives by knowing and trusting him as we walk in his way. Non-believers around us will be blessed by the love that flows out from Jesus' beloved community, his body, as a natural overflow from the abundant life that he has given us. So I ask you again, will we believe or merely believe in Jesus? Do you, do I believe Jesus in his words or do we merely believe in Jesus? A profound philosopher, Nancy Piercy, once said this, She wrote, having a Christian worldview means being utterly convinced that biblical principles are not only true, but also work better in the grit and grime of the real world. The early Christians faced a world even more dramatically and diametrically opposed to them and their way than the world in which we live. They lived in a world where they were actively persecuted. They conquered that world, though, in a mere three centuries by simply living the way Jesus lived, died, and justified that they might do. Justified them. Jesus justifies us so that we might live like him and according to the agape path he has outlined for us. First, they were transformed by Jesus' way for the good works which God prepared for them beforehand. And then they walked in those works. And in that way, completely outgunned by every cultural means of production, they slowly took over the world and transformed it for centuries to come. Now, it is our turn. Now, it is our turn. So do you, do I, merely believe in Jesus? Or do we believe Jesus so that we will stake our lives and our actions upon his instructions. In the grit and grime of the real world. Will you join me for a word of prayer? Gracious Lord Jesus, you lived and died and justified us by your grace that we might have the kind of life which is truly worth living and bubbles up to life eternal, abundant, abundant life. Grant us to believe you and not merely believe in you. Give us the courage when the tide is against us to swim against the tide. Help us to trust your word and your ways. Trust our lives, our families, our careers to them.
Grant us courage and growth in our, your grace, growth in our likeness to you, that we may not only have courage, but wisdom with which to act. Strengthen us and bless us in this and every way, that we may truly be your people and give glory to you who are forever beyond the need of our glory. This we ask in your name, for you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou art. Be thou my best thought in the day and the night. Waking or sleeping, that presence my life.